This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I appreciate you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We've got a great one for you this week, episode 245, entitled, The Messiah in Psalm 8. Yes, we are continuing to work through the Psalms to look at these messianic passages, the passages that early readers, Jewish and Christian, look to to get a better understanding about the promised Messiah, the Israelite king, the anointed ruler of the Jewish people, and of course of Christians as well. And so we've been looking through the Old Testament to find these passages, and we've worked our way up to the Psalms. Last week we looked at Psalm 2, and now we're looking at Psalm 8. So here's some questions I would like to explore as we examine Psalm 8 and the ways in which early Christians understood this passage in regard to the God of Israel and to Jesus. First, how does Psalm 8 reflect on the theology of Genesis chapter 1 and its depiction of Adam? Second, in what ways does Yahweh share his prerogatives with human beings, according to Psalm 8? Third, How do the New Testament authors portray Jesus as the recipient of God's prerogatives based on the theology of Psalm 8? And lastly, when the New Testament authors do indeed cite Psalm 8 in regard to Jesus, how does Jesus exemplify the human role in relation to the God of Israel? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at God and humanity in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 only has nine verses, pretty easy to read through, but it is packed with a lot of important details. So let's begin. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 verses 1 through 9. So it's very clear that this psalm is reflecting on and meditating quite heavily on Genesis chapter 1. 
and it does so in a way that acknowledges the superiority of not only the God of Israel, but the very creator of the heavens and the earth, who is in opposition to his adversaries, the enemy, and the revengeful. But Yahweh is the one who has displayed his splendor above the heavens. He is the one that has glory. He is the one that has majesty. In fact, he is majestic. And yet when the psalmist here looks at the created order, looks at the heavens, the moon, and the stars, and it's quite clear these are the works of Yahweh himself. They are the works which you have ordained, you being second person singular, one person, Yahweh alone created the heavens and the earth. And then after looking at those great majestic pieces of creation, in verse 4, the psalmist turns to human beings, probably reflecting on Adam in particular, whose name, by the way, means humanity. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, this is just two different ways of saying the same question. Man and son of man are just two different ways that are synonymous of referring to human beings, to humanity. Now, some people have looked at the phrase son of man and assumed that this is a technical reference to the Christological title that Jesus has, particularly within the four New Testament Gospels. But that's not actually the case here. The reference to Jesus as the Son of Man is drawing from Daniel chapter 7. This particular reference, Son of Man, is just another way of talking about a mortal, a human being. It's a synonym for man in verse 4. So it's not a technical word. It's not used in a technical Christological sense. It is set in parallel to humanity. And yet, when the psalmist looks at humanity in comparison to the heavens, the moon, and the stars, where does humanity rank among all creation? And we can see in verse 5, You, God, have made him lower than God. God has made humanity a little bit lower than God. I mean, that shows that the value of human beings is extremely high. Humanity is just a little bit lower than God. Meaning, by implication, they are above all other aspects of creation. And what's interesting in verse 5, and we really can't emphasize this enough, is that God has crowned humanity with glory and majesty. And if we look at these two terms, glory and majesty, these are terms that refer to God and his characteristics. God has his own glory, and yet God crowns humanity with God's own glory. God shares his glorious prerogative with human beings. And also, God shares his majesty with human beings. It's not just that human beings are highly relevant. They're only slightly lower than God on the tier. But God has empowered them and authorized them. God crowns them, both literally and figuratively, because Adam was crowned as the ruler, the regent, 
to rule all of God's creation on God's behalf as God's vice-regent. So God has crowned humanity with his own prerogatives. God shares his glory and God shares his majesty with human beings. And particularly, they were made to rule over the works of God's hands. All things are put under the feet of humanity. And again, this is drawing on Genesis chapter 1, particularly verses 27 through 28. And you can see that where Adam was to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creeping thing on the earth, what do we have here? That all things are put under the feet of human beings, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the fields, those are the things that are on the earth, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. So you kind of have all three levels of creation. We have things that are in heaven, the things that are on the earth, and the things that are under the earth. Which is interesting because in Philippians 2, when God highly exalts Jesus, every knee is going to bow to Jesus. And then when Paul describes the recipients of this rule, it is those who are in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. All rule and authority is given to Jesus, and every knee is going to bow to him. And so all the things under his feet reflects from Psalm 8, but ultimately drawing back to Genesis chapter 1. And then, of course, we have a repeat of the majestic name that Yahweh possesses. Verse 9 creates an inclusio with verse 1. It kind of bookmarks the entire psalm, indicating that Yahweh is full of majesty, despite the fact that Yahweh shares that majesty with mortals, with human beings, with members of the human race. And so this psalm begins by asking, where does humanity fit into the created order compared to the heavens, the earth, the moon, the stars? And yet we learn that human beings are only slightly lower than God. And yet God has shared his prerogatives with them, and God has placed all of the works of his hands under the feet of human beings. Human beings are the crowning accomplishment of creation, and they are the most important part of creation. And that is extremely important. Now I want to turn to the New Testament because there are many ways in which the New Testament authors have been influenced by Psalm 8, both directly and indirectly. So let's move to our second point, point number two, the empowerment of the human Jesus with God's prerogatives. Now, we don't have to strictly look at Psalm 8 in order to recognize that Yahweh, on occasion, shares his privileges, his prerogatives, and his characteristics with qualified agents. This happens quite frequently in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, but we're seeing it here in Psalm 8, where God shares his dominion, God shares his glory, and God shares his majesty with qualified human beings. So who would be the most qualified human being to be the recipient of these divine prerogatives? Well, that, of course, would be Jesus. And the New Testament Gospels do not shy away from indicating that Jesus has become the bearer of 
God's authority. So at the end of Matthew, we can see in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus tells us in his own words that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Now earlier in Matthew, Matthew indicates that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. But after the resurrection, Jesus tells us that he has not just the authority on earth, but he has the authority in heaven and on earth. And all this authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By whom? Well, clearly by God. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' own God, namely God the Father. So Jesus admits that he has been the recipient of all authority over heaven and on earth. Now the Gospel of John makes this clear earlier in the Gospel, prior to the resurrection. So in John chapter 3, verse 35, it says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and demonstrates that particular love by sharing the Father's prerogatives, privileges, authority, all things the Father shares with the human Son. And this gets repeated a few times in the Gospel of John, but I'll give you another example. In John 13, verse 3, it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands. John 13, verse 3. So this is a pretty common New Testament teaching. You can't get out of the Gospels without recognizing that Jesus is a human being that has been the recipient of God sharing his privileges, his prerogatives, his dominion, his glory, and his majesty. Clearly, the New Testament authors have been influenced in a very impactful way by Psalm 8. Let's move to our third point, which is the use of Psalm 8 by the Apostle Paul. Now, we can see traces and echoes of the theology of Psalm 8 throughout Paul, but in regard to a particular citation, we can see that in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is the massive and longest exposition on the resurrection of the dead in the entire Bible, an entire chapter dedicated to the resurrection of the dead. So let's read some context before we look at the citation of Psalm 8. 1 Corinthians 15, let's start in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For, and here's a citation from Psalm 8, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected 
to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. That is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 28. Okay, so in this exposition on the resurrection, Paul has to contrast the humanity of Adam with the humanity of Christ. And Adam is the representative human being that represents death and mortality. And Jesus, of course, is the human being that represents life and immortality because God has raised Jesus from the dead. And as the representative figure, Christ, he is the one that represents his people. But it's clear that the influence of Psalm 8 is quite massive here. We can see that there's a differentiation between Christ and God. And in fact, Paul is unashamedly indicating that God is far superior to Jesus. Jesus is subordinate to God the Father. Without any sort of hesitation or any explanation, it is just basic and understood. It isn't even really necessary to point out because it's quite clear that God is above all human beings. And Jesus, of course, is a man, a human being. He is a human Messiah. So God has raised Jesus from the dead. And at the coming of Jesus, at his second coming, he is going to hand the reign of God over to God the Father after he has abolished all rule and authority and power. And the passage tells us that he must reign, indicating the present reign of Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Of course, we saw in Psalm 8 that the majesty and glory of the Creator God in his majestic power shines in the midst of his enemies. And of course, the last enemy to be abolished is death itself. And then we have the citation from Psalm 8 that he has put all things in subjection under his feet, which of course indicates that the reign that was given to Adam, for God created Adam to rule over God's creation, and God has placed all things under subjection under the feet of this human being, is now being applied to Jesus, the second Adam. God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. But Paul is clear that all here clearly doesn't mean all because all doesn't include the Father. Obviously, the person who is putting all things under the subjection of Jesus' feet is not putting himself under the feet of Jesus. Jesus is not going to rule over the Father. That much is quite clear. Paul says it's evident, it's obvious, it is clear that the person who is doing the subjecting is not going to be a part of the all things that are being subjected. Even the Son himself, at one point of this, is going to be subjected to the one, that is the one God, the Father, who subjected all things to him. And the whole point here is that God will be all and all. And thereby we have Psalm 8 reproduced, and that Yahweh is majestic, he is the creator, and he has put all things in subjection under the feet of this qualified, authorized, and empowered human being, namely Jesus Christ.
Let's move to our fourth and final point, the use of Psalm 8 in the book of Hebrews. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, we have a lengthier citation. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 and the first 11 verses. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. For he did not subject angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man, that you remember him, or the son of man, that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him yet. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, this is in reference to God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That is God perfecting Jesus through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And really, we can spend an hour going through all the details here, and I would encourage people that are interested in that to look through the previous episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast that focused on the particulars of Hebrews chapter 2. We have quite a lot of content already on this. But what we need to see here is that Hebrews is actually citing psalmate, but it is citing psalmate from the Greek text. And there's a very important change that took place in the Greek translation of Psalm 8. And you probably caught it. We can see in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7, when it cites Psalm 8, it says that you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now, why does it say angels here? But when you go back and you look in your Old Testament, and also when you go back and you look at the original Hebrew, you can see in Psalm 8 that God has made humanity a little bit lower than God, a little bit lower than Elohim. Well, it's likely that the Septuagint translator understood God here as a reference to angels. At least the Hebrew noun Elohim could potentially be used to refer to angels on a few rare exceptions. 
And so in the Septuagint, it says that you have made humanity for a little while lower than the angels. And so it's that Greek version that gets cited here. And it also plays into the argument of Hebrews, which is trying to point out that Jesus is greater than the angels. Not that the angels are bad, or the angels are evil, or that they're old or irrelevant. It's just that Jesus is greater, and thereby what he provides is a much better revelation of the life-giving purposes of God. And so even though Jesus for a little while was lower than the angels, and the fact that he had to die, he suffered death for everyone, he still was crowned with glory and honor, meaning that Jesus as a human being was highly exalted and the recipient of God's privileges and prerogatives. Now it's clear that God is still the creator in Hebrews chapter 2, the sole creator, him, the one who created all things and through whom are all things. By bringing children to glory, by bringing the sons to glory, he perfected the author of their salvation through sufferings. And if Jesus needed to be perfected, then by definition, he was an imperfect person because he was a mortal. He was a human being. He was susceptible to death. And then we have this interesting point in chapter 2, verse 11, to where he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. Okay? Indicating that they are all children. Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all come from one Father. They all come from one particular source. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to whether this is in reference to one Father or if it's in reference to one human stock. But the point is, either way, they all share the same humanity. They are all brothers. They are all brethren. They're all members of the same human race indicating that Jesus is just as much of a human as every other human being on this earth. And the point there, at the very end of verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren, to call them brothers. He is a member of the human race. That's why Psalm 8 can be used to describe him. He is the man. He is the son of man. Yeah, he was made a little bit lower than God and at least a little bit lower than the angels as well. But God has crowned him with glory and honor and placed all things in subjection under his feet. This is Jesus, a member of the human race, distinct from the creator God, who has died completely. He's been raised from the dead, and he has been given this privilege to rule over God's creation. And the book of Hebrews indicates, just like Paul does, in 1 Corinthians 15, that there is a present sense of this reign that is already taking place, and there's also a future sense. Paul says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and that, of course, happens at the second coming. And Hebrews chapter 2 says that we do not yet see all these things subjected to him, even though it has already taken place. Something has happened, and yet it's not fully experienced and realized by the readers. So there you have it. Much of the influence of Psalm 8 upon the New Testament, of course, indicates that Jesus has been the recipient of God's privileges, God's prerogatives, and God's
God's dominion. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to look through these psalms. We will look at Psalm 16 next week. And if you're going to the UCA conference, I look forward to seeing you there next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths and non-negotiable truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check out the PayPal link that is linked to this particular episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.